every game. 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 All right, everybody. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna. What are we supposed to say? Every game way, in this Stunt City. We're not. Uh, this okay. is gonna be an editing nightmare. But yeah, sure. Let's try it. Welcome to Every Game in This City podcast about 10 game makers, curators, and researchers who met up in Malaysia for a week to try and play every escape room in Kuala Lumpur. I'm Laura E. Hall. I'm Goldie Bartlett. I'm Jay Biddulph. I'm Stephanie Bullock. I'm Alexandra Lee. I'm Lee Shanglun. I'm Patrick Lemieux. I'm Amani Nassim. I'm Chad Toprak. And I'm Douglas Wilson. And 16 months after the previous podcast was recorded, we're back together for one last episode of Every Game in the City. Beaming in from Australia, Sri Lanka, the United States, and yes, Malaysia, the team takes turns updating everyone on new projects and new play experiences that occurred over the last year. Hey everybody, and welcome to the reunion episode of Every Game in This City. Um, yay! yay. Big reunion! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been two weeks since the last episode was released, but it's been 16 months since we were sitting in that room doing the original recordings. Oh my god. And I love that in the in I was the last host, and I think I'm like, when we meet again in a month or two <laughs> weeks from now, it's like, no, no. <laughs> 16 months one later. year and yes. four months <laughs> yeah. and we're all in different rooms right now spread out across the world mm-hmm. um although of course we've been keeping in touch a lot in between um but yeah this is the first time we've actually sat down to record to reflect on the podcast that's happened uh to think about the podcast that's coming next yeah yeah what a wild ride <laughs> so what has everybody been up to mm-hmm. yeah, yeah we're yes. to know so excited to hear about what everybody's been doing. Yeah. So it's funny, like I, was just, I completely forgot that we did like a three month pop up at the end of last year after <laughs> coming back from, from Malaysia. Oh, um, yeah. We did like a, a thing called the One Maker's House, which was our attempt at doing a kind of scaled up, very light puzzle adventure um, for oh, up wow. to like 30 people simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And that was just that was Halloween 2018, right? Yes. Uh huh. That's right. Uh, and it went through to the end of the year. Yeah. It looked um, amazing. Yeah, that was really fun. Oh, Whoa, I actually didn't realize that it went for three months. I thought it was just kind of like Halloween week or something. Yeah. we. That's wild. So it went all the way to like Christmas? It went to December 31st. Amazing. Um, yeah, we, we extended it because there was demand for it. Um, which Can was- you say more about what it is? Like, Yeah, so... Um, we had access to a space in our in the same building where our escape room is. Um, so it's a huge open space, basically. And we crafted this story about um, a wand maker who stole a magical book, and then the book kind of exploded and turned her house topsy-turvy. And so the game is that you are in different rooms of the house, but they're all sort of wrong in some way. Um, and for that part, we 
just really wanted to make sort of like big visual installation-y scenes. Um, but then there was a, a puzzle game with four different tracks that you could tackle at any time that took you throughout the space. Um, yeah, we, Those we, scenes we, looked so great in the pictures that you were posting on Twitter. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was and really fun. We really made it on like an incredibly short timeline because oh. we only found out that we could actually get the space uh, very late on in the process. So mm -hmm. it was just like, what can we do to fill like 4,000 square foot in <laughs> a month, yes. essentially? It was, it from, was like, tough. From like design to production. Yeah. So it was a, it was a big challenge. But we and how long does the, the oh. play experience take? Um, it was 45, 45 minutes. minutes so that we could rotate a number of groups through. Yeah. We just wanted to experiment with scale um, because, of course, you know, there's a big time boxing thing around escape rooms. It's a limited number of people. And we just wanted to see if we said enter this space and play around in it, what would happen? Uh, so, yeah, I think the result was pretty good. And a month is a very short amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> I was think I, I have a I have a quick question about that like the visual aspect of it yeah. because I remember I remember when we were in KL you were talking about how it was nice to uh, be able to take pictures in there so did you actually design your one so people would take pictures in there we yeah we designed the wand maker space so that people could take photos in it like it was not meant to be the sort of selfie museum thing although it could be like if you just wanted to come and pay the ticket price and ignore the puzzles completely and just kind of hang out, you could. Um, but people actually got so engrossed in the puzzles that they um, they didn't do that. There were a lot of photos taken in there, but that didn't end up being what the space prioritized. Um, and it actually turned into a much more family-friendly event as we were producing it. So like a lot of the content was aimed at families, some with like very young kids. So they would like lead them around on this kind of more of an adventure. Like the puzzles weren't, super difficult it was mostly about like finding things around the space and putting things together um just with like a few interactive elements as well mm -hmm. that's so nice Amazing. i'm i'm curious uh the i think the two of you had some of the most kind of incisive uh commentaries and critiques of uh escape room puzzle design when we were in kuala lumpur and did any of those sort of lessons learned apply or were you like explicitly thinking of of stuff that you had encountered when building the the puzzle design for for this piece yeah and i i wouldn't say that we used the lessons from the malaysia trip in that but we have definitely used them in the escape room that we're currently working on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we, so we got um, into this space in January to mm -hmm. into our actual escape room space. It was finally constructed enough that we could move in. Mm -hmm. um, and since then, we've been working with like a big team of uh, carpenters and artists to like really uh, <laughs> bring like a, a really great experience to life. Yeah. And it's it's taking taking time, but we are getting ever closer. And we're like, I feel like we're really considering um, some of the deeper aspects that we had talked about on the the podcast previously. Yeah, is that the one that I came and saw in Portland during GDC or just after GDC? It is freaking unreal. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I just saw it as I was in Portland in September, uh, talking to Jay and Laura about it, seeing the space. Uh, yeah, very exciting. Uh, mm. Mm. How much how much are you allowed to say about it? Um, so the scenario of it is that you are in the attic hideout of a teenage girl who was obsessed with an 80s cartoon that never had a final episode. 
And as you go through the room, you will be the one who like creates the final episode and you'll uh, enter the fantasy world yourself. Yeah. Spoilers. Awesome. <laughs> That's Amazing. So yeah. Oh my God. Wait, so you've been developing it since January. Yes. So it's been like, uh, like 10 or 11 months on that. Yeah. In, in the space. Yes. Wild. Yeah. We're in the middle right now of a, a sprint to the end of the year where we try to move um, some of the more permanent parts of the construction forward. Um putting in like the final wiring for some things and then covering it up, which is a huge step. <laughs> I mean, this is maybe one, I don't know if we mentioned this on the podcast, but like one of the things is like the materials that we're using. Like we are trying to like lean towards, they are more hard to work with, but like things like concrete. So like mm. instead of building a foam stone wall that feels like foam when you tap it and you can hear it, yeah, the hollowness uh, of we're the actually like making a concrete wall, but it does still have electronics inside of it. So we're trying to like marry these kind of complicated things together. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, when you think, when you're thinking about making something so permanent, like I struggle with that as an art director on Wayward Strand, like going, Oh, but if I, if I really decide to do this, then that's the decision. And, and that's that. Like if you're creating this concrete wall with wiring, are you trying to design it so that it could be wiring that you could repurpose for the next puzzle in, in a couple of years time? Are there things like that going on? Uh, I don't think we would end up repurposing stuff. We would just like sledgehammer it down. But yeah. uh, <laughs> the puzzles themselves, because they're electronics based, are adjustable in a lot of ways. So when the wiring is in and the basic setup is there, there's stuff that we can continue to tweak to make the game better. Mm-hmm. Working across um, kind of the world of video games as well as the world of immersive uh, reality experiences has made me really love the immateriality of code and the fact that you can change things uh, relatively easily. When you build something in the Mm -hmm. real world, it feels so difficult to change and the problems that come up inevitably uh, need physical solutions. Like it's very uncompromising in that sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we, it took us a long time to find really good people to, to work with on this project, but like we have some people who are very flexible and they're very good at like, we know what we want this to do, but like finding the exact mechanical way to make this happen, they're like really great at just like putting that into a physical item. Yeah. And the challenges of physical building, you know, in this, we have the design of the puzzle. We know what we want the space to feel like. We know how the interactions should be. But then when you're actually in the space, there's so many things that have to change just because of the realities of that physical space. You know, like just this door swings and it hits this thing weird. And so you have to adjust. It's like a cascade of dominoes from that point. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, like yeah. almost a holistic design approach. It's kind of annoying how much um, actual real life physics is a constraint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you've been doing that, right? You, you've, you've built something yourselves. Yeah. Tell us about what you built. Yeah. What what did we build? What did we build? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. We're still working on Earthrise One, which I think uh, to the listeners two weeks ago we might have said, "Hey, it's coming out really soon," and it's sixteen months later, and it's still coming out really soon. Um, but it's been a process of exactly this of, of working with materials and finding almost slapstick solutions yeah like we have our the way that our doors work is like literally a medieval 
Marvel style, <laughs> like with sandbags and gravity and all of that type of thing. All <laughs> hidden away. So the, the most complex, <laughs> strange mechanisms are just behind walls, behind this, I guess, as Jay was saying, layer of concrete. Have your has your understanding of what Earthrise One is kind of changed over the over the year and a half you've been working on? And can you describe again to what it is, just as a summary? Sure. So Earthrise One is an immersive experience, um, kind of a hybrid of an escape room, a cooperative video game, and a sci-fi thriller. And we invite three to five people into space as a maintenance crew for Starlight Industries, a fictional company that sends spacecraft into geosynchronous orbit for research purposes. And while you're there, you're tasked with solving puzzles on this ship because it's broken down, um, so you need to repair it, but also perhaps solving the mystery uh, of the missing inhabitants and find out what they were up to. Mm -hmm. So our desire in and design philosophy was that everything in this experience should make uh, internal logical sense and everything is there to help build the world and build the this idea that the narrative uh, has happened and that you get to logical sense and everything is there to help build the world Ooh. wow siri just listened to me um <laughs> <laughs> sorry a voice rogue like ai <laughs> yeah she said looking for web results for everything makes logical sense <laughs> <laughs> but, oh no! Good. <laughs> Earthrise One uh, outside of the escape room. It's just all <laughs> spreading. Earthrise One is um, a virus, and it's uh, just <laughs> contaminating my mind and everything that I touch. <laughs> um, but working over it for the past one and a half years has been a, a terror and joy, uh, which I think fits Play Reactive's desires anyway as a studio, um, because it's bringing to light all the difficulties, all the uh, real craft challenges of creating something physically, um, but at the same time allowing us to um, kind of stake out cr creatively and artistically what we believe this medium can do based on our adventures in Malaysia and elsewhere. So what you, what you both are saying is that escape rooms take a really long time to build. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly long. And it's something I think that even people who are enthusiastic players don't always grasp. We were, we were having a conversation with somebody who was describing a room that she had played recently. And she was saying, oh, well, you know, there was this, this, and this, and it's just so easy to fix. I don't know why they don't do it. Uh, you know, and we were sitting with some other owners and all of us, we just exchanged glances. Like once that thing is in there, <laughs> it's so much work to get, you know, that's so far down the list of like fixing the broken edge of this prop, you know? Yeah. It's just so much work. <laughs> there comes a point where people point out to you like, oh, this is broken. And you're like, cool, we'll fix it. And just go, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> yeah, I'll fix it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So you're saying that you're just like the escape room owner who, when I called about the lasers not doing anything, mommy I was just going to say that. Laughed in my face on the phone. <laughs> That's just a prop. <laughs> yeah, I bet oh, we were like no. these arrogant international designers come in like, oh, it'd be really cool if you like lowered that by like five centimeters, you know? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so speaking of playing escape rooms, I'm sure alongside kind of building a few amongst the group, we've, we've played a bunch of things. And the Stephanie and I, as soon as we finished the Malaysia trip, we flew to Hong Kong 
And a friend of ours there was like, great, you're here. I have a competitive escape room tournament that I've set up. And your names are already in the draft with like PhD in games alongside them as a way to to monetize (laughs) us within the drafting. Like how many points are we worth? And we got drafted onto multiple teams and shot in through like a series of escape rooms as soon as we got there. So I think we did like, what, like? Like five or six yeah, in Hong yeah, Kong directly yeah. we, after. We, as, as soon as we touched down in Hong Kong, we immediately started playing many, many escape rooms. Uh, and it was very interesting because it turned out that there were huge, huge differences yeah. between the escape rooms in Hong Kong versus those in, in Malaysia. Um, one of my favorite escape rooms that we ended up playing there was based on this really, really famous Hong Kong movie called The God of Gamblers yeah, that, that stars a very, very young and handsome Chow Young fat oh. And in order, so it was also in Cantonese. And so we were with our friend. And the first puzzle <laughs> was like a full-on electronic mahjong. mahjong table that expected you to like set up the hands of right. mahjong correctly wow. for all, all four players without any extra without any like embedded clues in that situation just like know what these hands of this game are yeah so we were with somebody who had uh like high but not perfect level cantonese and and was doing his best to like help translate everything but in addition to the the language in addition to having to know like the rules of mahjong what you also had to know was like this movie from the yeah. 80s in Which order to get movie. really, really specific cultural references that were also based all around chocolate. <laughs> what? what? Yeah. Let, no way. Let it soak in. <laughs> that, like, all of the keys and puzzle pieces in this room were like chocolate milk and chocolate bars. Because the main character, Chow Young-Fat, in this movie, like what ties it together is his chocolate eating. He, he's like addicted to this one chocolate Brand. bar yeah. and he's just like is scarfing it constantly <laughs> in the movie, like full bricks of chocolate into his mouth. <laughs> is oh. like, lady? That's what you had to like... <laughs> it was not, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so it's not like a Japanese game show where everything in it is made of, cho- of something that looks like chocolate. No. You have to find no, the thing no, that I is. I love that. Yeah, it was more like you set up the mahjong table correctly and like a hatch opened with like chocolate in it with an RFID tag and you had to put the chocolate on the right seat and things like that. <laughs> Sorry, are, we, are we talking actual edible chocolate or like are they just props? They were just props. Like oh, they okay. had the, the specific brands. So what you would have had to do is like recognize that from from the movie. Okay. Um, I see. And because I mean it yeah. it was it was a contrast in some ways because there was also a room that was all Chinese zodiac math and so it was all like multiples of 12 for every puzzle and you ostensibly if you grew up doing um kind of Chinese zodiac like you're the rat, you're the pig, etc., you'd be able to do these puzzles really quickly, but we had a pretty <laughs> hard time doing it. There was also like an amazing um kind of like born again Christian room where you were Moses. Yeah. Wow. And you had to like go through the whole sequence of like finding the tablets and like parting the Red Sea and all that. And all of those different rooms, we're not gonna get into it, but they they all had something to do explicitly with like Cantonese and like Hong Kong culture, Hong, Hong in Kong different, in identity, ways. Yeah. very, very explicitly. In a way that I remember when we were in Malaysia, uh, that that didn't that wasn't as uh, explicitly telegraphed in the in the rooms. Although they still definitely were like a KL style escape mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, I mean, ultimately, it, it was really fun to see the differences, especially coming off such a high intensity trip, like the every escape room trip, and then just jumping into a different city, kind of like Doug was talking about, like going to Paris or something for another week of escape rooms afterwards. And the other thing that it tied together for me is I wondered, like, what the competitive part of escaping would be like. And we kind of thought about speedrunning or something on the trip, but uh, this tournament structure actually did that for me. The um, esports of escape rooms. Yeah, not totally successful, but uh, I think we won. The tournament itself wasn't. with you. They divided us up onto different teams and, like, made bets based on that but it turned out i was a bad bet yeah which is like always the case but (laughs) i was a great bet yeah so wait so uh i'm really curious to hear what other people have been kind of playing or working on oh i i I played a i played a game and some escape rooms with like with my kids in sri lanka amazing how was it playing with children well it was just really confusing rooms and the things that and uh and not very well uh set out and there was no narrative to it so it was just one puzzle after another um and things were kind of broken some of the places but there was something really interesting that after we finished they were all they were watching us the whole time from screens and we could talk to them by uh sign language and then they would uh, they would come in and give us hints along the way i think it was designed for kids to play mm. And then when we finished, they gave us each um, kind of badges or characters, depending on our play style. Hmm. Cool. I don't remember them anymore. I should have written them down somewhere. That's really interesting because of the um, the rooms that we played that had the role assignments. So this was something that happened after. Yeah, it was something afterwards, yeah. Ah, that's really cool. We really like, the kids really loved that, that they got like, a reward or like they got uh, a reward for doing well in some things and observing and things like like the most observant or the leader or you know there were things like that so the organize so the people who run the escape room had to watch you really carefully in order to be able to know what awards to give is that right yeah and they were actually really excited about uh, watching and and interacting with us they were really nice. It's just the the design was a bit confusing. It re- and, it reminds- it had, and it had uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean theme playing all that the whole time. <laughs> like it really. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, I, I think that's really ex- exciting. It it reminds me of uh, you know famously in GoldenEye for the Nintendo sixty four after a multiplayer match you get these. Uh, procedurally dictated, uh, you know, like best killer, you know, whatever oh, yeah. these kind of awards based on yeah. your play style. That that seems like a lot of labor, um, which is yeah. probably why it's not seen that much around the world in terms of watching so carefully and critically that you can give meaningful individual awards. But that that certainly is a very um, appealing idea. Like I'd love I'd love to try that. Um. I- Shalon and I went to a escape room in London a few years back, actually before the KL trip, and it was called Time Run, which is now it's they've taken it down, but they've launched another escape room, and that was wildly successful. And at the end of it, they would give you a sheet 
with points as well as assigning who like a similar sort of concept like who is the most team player who solved the most puzzles all of these types of things it gave you um a team description like the diplomats yeah like how you chose to solve a puzzle the hive if you worked like bees yeah it was amazing like they gave you this thing to keep and it makes you really feel like special i guess because it's like oh yeah we did work like a team in that way and then we found out because we got to speak (laughs) to the owners um and they showed us behind the scenes and they're just like all of these people in this room staring at the computers like really really um paying attention to every detail of it so it was really really cool and they just have one person dedicated to debriefing the teams um every single time so it's really interesting yeah yeah i think there were there were two people watching us and when we came out they they gave us stickers with with our styles with our personalities on it all the better to draft you into the next tournament with (laughs) yeah (laughs) um i've been busy with wayward strand uh still going on that old beautiful game can, can you describe that again for yeah. the listeners? Yeah, sure. So it's a it gets described as like a point and click adventure, um, but it's a little deeper than that. We've got concurrent storylines. So we were like really inspired by Sleep No More. Um, and uh, basically you play as this 14-year-old girl named Casey and it takes place on an airborne hospital in 1970s Australia. Um, and the unit of the hospital that you're in is the like the nursing home wing. And your mum's the head nurse and you've just been asked uh, up onto the ship for three days. And all you have to do really is like keep the characters company. That includes the nurses and the patients. Um, and yeah, follow all of these different threads uh, to solve a few little mysteries and, and find out some secrets and, and basically just like keep everybody company and, and sort out a few like personal problems that some of them are having. Are having. Um, but the concurrent storylines thing is, is uh, my favorite thing of that game. So like mm-hmm. it's three days, uh, same thing as I said, as sleep no more or, or midnight visit or something like that. Um, where say it's 9am on the second day, uh, you could be hanging out with Lily, the nurse, but everything else that's happening at 9am on the second day you're missing. And those moments that you're missing could be providing like key insights to some of the stuff that you are trying to solve. Um, so it's it's like very replayable, but it's not designed to feel stressful. It's like a super relaxing, um, enjoyable narrative experience. The trailer um, looks yeah. The trailer, the middle trailer you made looks really amazing. I was going to say that. Really relaxing. Yeah. I really like the idea of like an escape room or even a sleep no more uh, mm. kind of styled experience that is like relaxing and not yeah. hurried. And mm-hmm. it seems like Favorite Strand has a very like chill vibe. Like we never encountered, I mean, maybe this is what the Wanmaker's house was more like, but we, we never really encountered an escape room that had like a, a relaxing vibe. <laughs> I mean, may, maybe like the, um, the, the banal setting of something like school could go there, but, yeah. but it didn't because of the yeah. time limits. I mean, yeah. one of the downsides of Sleep No More is that you feel stressed out by everything that you're not seeing. It doesn't invite you to see everything right. about it. Um, I'm so excited for Wayward Stram. Like, or I, the Thank trailer's yeah. so beautiful. Thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah. The the relaxation thing is really important. Really important to us because 
the game is hopefully going to be for people who don't normally play games as well. So we are like, okay, well, if we're going to make this game that we want to have, you know, grandparents or, or people who like to read books, but don't, don't identify as somebody who likes to play games. Like if, if we're making it for them, we can choose to give them this like high octane gamer experience, or we can choose to give them something that's more about the stories and more about the characters and, and just chilled out. Like, why not? Mm. Um, and it feels really lovely to play. So, so fingers are So crossed. exciting to me that there's um, such a multiplicity, a Cambrian explosion of uh, new games being created by new game makers for new audiences. Mm. Um, and, and the plurality of those alternative expressions um, just continues to excite me and, and energize me uh, as a game maker me and art too. maker. Yeah. You mentioned oh. uh, a midnight visit in kind of the long I list did. of things. What what was that? I did. Uh, was that you, Shang Lin, who just asked me that? We're not yeah. in person. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> Despite the fact that I went to it with you. <laughs> yeah, you cheeky. Um, so Shang Lin, Alex, Chad, Doug, uh, oh, and Melissa, Doug's partner, Melissa, we went to this um, theatre experience in Melbourne a few weeks ago called A Midnight Visit. And it was um, a sort of, uh, would you say it was two hours, a two-hour experience? It was sort of inspired by Sleep No More, but I don't think there was, um, I don't think there were any puzzles involved. And it was just like a two-story warehouse that had been um, converted into various like cool spaces filled with actors who were acting out some kind of Edgar Allan Poe-esque drama um, with a kind of like haunted Victoriana vibe. Um, uh, it was groovy. It was groovy. It was not what I was expecting. Um, I think, uh, I mean, not to start with a criticism, but where it did fall a little flat for me was that there were probably about 150 people in there experiencing it at the same time. So it, it, I, I feel like the, oh. the, yeah, it got a little bit lost on me. And I think that there was that pressure of like, oh my God, where am I supposed to be? I'm, I'm kind of like a little overwhelmed. And after a while, I think what happens is that that kind of gets exhausting. So you give up. I, I gave up on trying to feel immersed. immersed. Mm. I, I, um, I ended up walking around and kind of like started judging its production values mm. more than just enjoying it. But that could also be the, the, the designer, the designer's mind. Don't know. What yeah, did you think? I, 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 so I, um, it was frustrating for me as well. Like, I think, um, I was also trying to seek out like what the, what the narrative was and like following the thread of, um, actors and, and the rooms and, and kind of, you know, uh, exploring and uncovering, um, the rooms for the first time. But after a while, much like you, I just kind of, I gave up and like, uh, you know, I don't. I don't know if it was one particular thing that led to it, but um, I, yeah, it, it became quite frustrating at some point, and um, yeah, after a while, I was just wandering around and ending up in the same rooms. I think that also added to the frustration. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, there's a lot to love as well. The production was beautiful. The the set dressing was stunning. The costumes was, were great. The actors did a fantastic job. And I think there were a lot of strong ideas throughout. But for me, it was the, it was the overcrowding that, that killed it for me. Um, 
I know Doug had a lot of thoughts about it as well. Um, yeah, sure. We can cover that briefly. Um, uh, I think one of the things that makes Sleep No More work uh, as uh, an immersive experience is that you get to see you see the narrative and that takes like an hour or whatever. And then you get another, like they replay the whole narrative. So you could go experience from a different part. And it's that replay quote unquote, replaying it a second Mm. time that I think makes the whole thing kind of legible and interesting. hundred percent. And I'm, I'm a little surprised um, both in interactive theater, but also uh, we could wonder escape rooms, um, I would I would love to see more of that. Uh, replayability is the wrong word. I don't mean to... I hate that su- word. <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that you should be able to do it again and again and again or something, but just even having multiple goes to kind of see the things that you missed, uh, I think yeah. is an important part of the experience. So yeah, I would love to see more of that in, yeah. in immersive experiences. Yeah, well, wait, wait, wait another eight months or so and, and hopefully Wayward Strand will, will scratch that itch. Yes. So beyond experiencing um, a midnight visit with Goldie and Doug, uh, what have you been up to since Malaysia? Um, so I'm actually tuning in from Malaysia. Um, I arrived what? yesterday. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll, I'll be here for a couple of weeks. And I'm actually super excited to visit some of the escape room parlors and check in on, on uh, some of the uh, escape room owners and, and designers. Did you think we were recording the podcast there? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, Chad's the only one that showed up. Yeah. <laughs> will will people you know um, say oh the restaurant critic is coming quick you know give yeah. give them the the best Chad Toprak is in town clean clean up all your puzzles yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but I'm I'm super keen to see if there's actually any any new escape room uh, uh, parlors or, or escape rooms mm-hmm. in general um, so definitely. Definitely looking forward to playing um, a bunch of escape rooms while I'm here. That's so amazing. I mean, and there were also so many that were closed when we were there. It would be yeah. funny to drop in on some of the ones that we were, were like hoping to play, uh, but we didn't get to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so definitely uh, looking forward to touching base with the, the local uh, game developer scene here as well. We noted that we were kind of in a strange place where Malaysia was one of the first uh, countries broadly to adopt escape rooms uh, as an industry uh, that then had a bubble. And we came in at the time of the bubble having burst. Um, Mm. And a lot of the escape rooms were maybe what we would call first generation or even 1.5th generation escape rooms. Um, Uh, Right. I'm really curious to hear whether... uh, we've seen a new generation of escape rooms or whether that industry has just continued to die in Kuala Lumpur. Well, I saw a news Mm. article after we had left that um, selfie museums were the new craze. So they were, they were starting to pop up like multiple of these sort of photo locations that are themed. Um, But so we just Uh missed that one and that's 16 months ago. (laughs) One of the things that might be a little um, a little sad kind of revisiting is I think a few of the rooms that we visited on the project that we had an amazing time at have closed since then. So mm. I'm actually not sure if Code Factory, for example, is still running. Um, oh, wow. But I'd be curious if you could find, um, uh, find out. Uh, it seemed like their Facebook page had basically been shut down last time I checked. 
Um, so yeah, a lot of things have changed. I mean, when we showed up that week, some of the rooms that we had booked the previous mm. week were gone. So it makes sense that some of the places that we had these amazing memories at have also uh, been shuttered in the last 16 months. Mm. Playing an escape room is always kind of a, an ephemeral experience. Even what, what Laura was talking about, about like making an escape room where you can take photos or making an experience where you can take photos is right. sort of uh, in contrast to the, the kind of anxieties around spoilers or even espionage that, that uh, it seemed to kind of characterize a lot of the escape room, uh, a lot of escape room design. And uh, it's not just that the play is ephemeral, but it seems like the rooms themselves kind of pop up and then are, you know, you go back a, a couple years later and they're lost to history. What I'm really happy about from having done this podcast is that we managed to sort of mark a little slice in time that, uh, you know, had we done that, not done that, I probably like would have forgotten my own play experiences uh, in addition to the fact that many of the escape rooms are probably no longer there or they've taken on a form where they're very different from how we were engaging with them. Yeah. I'm feeling very n- nostalgic, like, because it's not just a mark in time for the rooms there in KL or KL itself, but also like us. Like yeah. we have this memory of this moment we spent together that there's no going back to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was also so anemic at the time, so I actually don't remember a lot, but then I realized <laughs> a lot of other people don't remember it either. So. But I, think I would we were actually all in a fever dream. great to have that reference. Well, I mean, just thinking about the kind of memory of these escape rooms, uh, and you know, we're not going to be able to exhaustively list all the things that we've done in the last 16 months, but uh, actually me... Goldie, Patrick, and Stephanie in San Francisco with some other friends did Mm -hmm. uh, a a very famous high production value escape room called the Edison uh, Escape Room uh, by Palace Games. Uh, They do a whole uh, number of escape rooms in San Francisco. And in in many ways, it was an extremely memorable, uh, very high quality, um, surprisingly delightful escape room. But... uh, you know, I can remember certain moments, but in terms of like taking away design lessons, um, some of that just feels like one of many memories that have uh, happened in this like very busy 16 months that I've happened. So even being able to listen uh, to our podcast recordings the last the last few weeks as, as we've released the episodes has done an extraordinary amount of work cementing the memories and design lessons of our Malaysia trip. So yeah, I just wanted to agree that I think um, doing documentation and then revisiting that documentation after some of the memories have faded uh, is an extremely valuable way of, I think, solidifying our time and our lessons in that that particular place. So in in a way that uh, I don't have that relationship to a bunch of um, great, uh, but uh, escape rooms around the world or wherever that, that, Mm. Or I've already I've already kind of forgotten a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I just I just yeah. wanted to emphasize how uh, important that documentation ha- has been for me as well. Mm-hmm. It never actually occurred to me that um, the escape rooms that we played could actually like one day close down and no longer exist. So, um, <laughs> yep. yeah, it's been yeah. remarkably difficult to find some of their websites. In fact, on the Idle Thumbs website, when I link all the rooms, some of them are now archive.org links, even wow. in the time of a yeah. you know a little over a year. 
Wow. I think there's a similarity in terms of the ethics of preservationism of video games, where a lot of, for example, ROMs and um, old material was preserved because it was illegally kept or downloaded. Mm. Um, and in the same way, for a lot of these escape rooms, the only memory or uh, documentation of them might be our sneaky recordings or photos that we took when we were told not yep. to. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's kind of a nice Do you remember the one we tried to break into that was closed down? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember it so well, like it was 16 months ago. Um, but there, <laughs> the, the Avatar, the Avatar poster. Yep. Oh, so good. I mean, we had been in it when it was alive, and it was a truly magnificent Avatar statue. Yeah. I mean, what they have as a memory is they can just watch Avatar again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Aww. <laughs> There was there was one thing I also wanted to mention. Sorry, because <laughs> I was thinking about like how things um, have been closing down and they're kind of moving into new eras and stuff. The people who made Breakout they made um, a live immersive theater thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's the first oh, really? haunted, yeah, the first haunted immersive theater experience Ooh. in Malaysia, and they actually Ooh, announced whoa. that just a few months after we left. KL. It's called Haunt You. So, Chad, I would really recommend that you go and do that. Is it in the Nolan verse? No, <laughs> it's actually about Malaysia. It's um, it centers around a colonial hotel filled with mystery and the paranormal, and it has to do with um, they they get to role play as the players, and then you also experience Malaysia in different eras from its pre-independence days right up to the present. Amazing. Incredible. What? Yeah, wow. Chad, homework number <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> Go I, I, I'm on it. I, I, I am on it. But yeah, speaking of memories, I think we should take the break and return to our favorite memories and lessons after that. Now that we've caught up on some of the things we've been up to over the last year, after a short break, the group gets sentimental about their favorite memories of escaping together. (laughs) Welcome back. Um, We are going to chat now about... Um, some of the favorite things that we experienced, the lessons that we've learned, um, just kind of catching up with our thoughts and with each other. Yeah, it's been a long road. Um, it's so much has happened between now and then. So I'm really curious to hear what are some of the standout moments. If you can even remember I them. still miss the food. Yes. I love the food. <laughs> yeah, you just can't get like Nasi Lamak in the States. You just can't. It's very no, difficult. I've, I've tried so many times to get anything remotely as good, and it's just not a, not a thing. Yeah. I mean, I also miss our shared meal times. Yeah. Those that was so much fun. Yeah. 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 I, the laughing. The laughing. We laughed so much. <laughs> it's actually, it's funny. It's like something that's kind of not captured in the podcast is the is the kind of cohabitation, like, 
like staying in the same apartment and like eating meals together and like it being like a routine, like a family routine. And it being like its own version of an escape room because we only had one. (laughs) And so we, you know, and we got, that's right. We got a lot better at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over time, we had to function as a a kind of whole rather than as individuals going in and out doing their own thing. Yeah, I think we made just the like the perfect team because you know, apart from like getting to enjoy spending time with like some very brilliant and you know smart people and just nerding out, like that was great, but within the escape rooms, there were so many moments that we were like individually frustrated, but as a team, we were mature enough to let each other just do that in the moment. But I think we knew how to wrangle that and knew that it was sort of part of the experience of putting ourselves under so much stress. Um, And I I just always really kind of appreciated that. Yeah. uh, You know, this whole discussion, uh, for me, and I'm sure this is very different for the people actually making escape rooms. I don't make escape rooms personally, but that to some degree, the escape rooms themselves, for me, are that kind of almost like the least interesting part of the trip, that it's all this stuff around that, you know, the way routine and group dynamic uh, motivates a certain type of play, right? So it's not just that you make a good escape room, like a formal object or a series of puzzles, and then, like, out comes laughter. And actually, it's so much more than just the object itself. Like, obviously, you, you know, you still want to make a good escape room and that matters. But all that stuff around it playing well together. And, you know, we can talk about that in a little bit in terms of takeaways. But for me personally, uh, I've, I've been really haunted by this trip, actually, if I'm totally honest, in terms of, um, you know, it's this kind of like analogy of, of uh, once you've tasted a, a really amazing wine, you can never drink bad wine again, or like you know, whatever that is. <laughs> I, I think it's um, once you've... It really was. It was, it was really nice. To t- totally. And, and I think it's once you've seen group play go really well, uh, it makes it more painfully obvious later on when you have other group play experiences that aren't going as well. Um, And I I think, uh, you know, it's really valuable, but also haunting in terms of, uh, and, you know, a lot of that is, comes from the specialness of ritual, of traveling uh, to a special place to do that. All, All of that, all these things we did around the trip is partly what motivated us to really put in the kind of energy. And the, so I, I think about that a lot in terms of this problem, um, you know, in the classroom, but also with my friends playing games. What is that group work of like motivation and criticality to get to that level of energy to kind of juice the most out, out of a game as much as possible? So anyway, for me, that's the, that's the thing I'm continually thinking about s- since this trip. Um, you know, I think it's, it's so easy like we have expressions like child's play or this idea that play is somehow simple or it's trivial and you just go and you do it and you have a good time. And it turns out to actually like play well together as a group, specifically when, you know, you're, you're, uh, 10 people living together in the same space that that's really, really hard. And, and I, I no longer take play for granted 
in the same way that I did before this trip and kind of like in the same way that Doug is haunted. I'm, I'm kind of always in search of that well-played game because that was something we, we achieved together while we were there because we were like taking it really, really seriously and, and investing kind of our time and energy. And that just made all of the experiences so much more kind of heightened and so much more satisfying that um, it's, it's really, it's like alchemy, right? It's really hard to, to generate that type of play community. And it's something that, you know, um, like Doug, I'm, I'm somebody that teaches games in the classroom yep. and, and I also yep. like to play games. And you can't just like easily manufacture that. You can't just sort of pull that out of a hat. And the fact that we managed to achieve that, for me, that's, a, that's really beautiful. And it also is something that is non-trivial. It was really hard to do. Mm-hmm. I think I used most of my energy during the day playing because I didn't I realized I didn't talk that much during the podcast but I I was just drinking coffee and trying to stay awake <laughs> because I was so sick at that time um, I'm really curious how much of that um, playing well togetherness is owed due to the the format of the escape room and and how much is it um, about us just spending time together and and the intensity um, right yeah. Like if we'd been playing competitive games, you know, would it have would it have played out really like vastly differently or would we have still had this like great like sense of, you know, cuz escape rooms are like team building exercises, right? So yeah. We've built a bloody good team. Yeah. And I think that the the qualities that made for strong play in the spaces allowed us to cohabitate in a way that was also very peaceful and harmonious. Like the, it's it's basically the same thing uh, in I, my mind. The same behavior. I guess. I guess personally, uh, I tend to fall more on the side of the group methods and rituals more than like the formal object or genre or cooperative thing. Um, and you know, when I brought up this point about being haunted by the trip, I, I I don't really mean that for the listeners in terms of back patting ourselves. Oh, didn't we do such a good job in Malaysia? But actually, more because <laughs> to, to you know to try to encourage both ourselves in the future, but any listeners to be really attentive, you know, in in that way, Stephanie mentioned about what are those kinds of rituals around play uh, that you can do to hopefully heighten those play experiences. Uh, And, you know, I realized like Stephanie, this is something that I've really been struggling with, I think in the classroom, I think, uh, you know, often students, maybe it's the morning, maybe they don't know each other very well, but, but how do you do that work in a very different setting uh, you know, trying to inspire and motivate them to play critically and well together. Uh, I should mention, you know, in terms of what I've been up to in the last 16 months, uh, me and Patrick, uh, cool. almost like directly inspired by this trip, uh, mm-hmm. started t- teaching a class together across Australia uh, and uh, Davis in California uh, with our students on video chat, kind of working together, making cooperative games together, uh, which was really inspiring and challenging and, and everything in between. And it's, it's, wow. it's something we want to keep iterating was, on. Uh, yeah, it was wow. so, so co-op across two countries was, <laughs> I think, so intense for the students, but also intense for me as an educator, like learning to work with Doug in this way. And then, the the lessons that we learned as teachers, I think, were were really um, palpable and really clear because we could compare and contrast them with the experience of this trip. So, a, a lot of the assignments were 
um, you know, they had a scaffolding of use this banal technology like Skype or, or uh, uh, you know, a podcast recording software or something like that to make a kind of cooperative play experience. But what we learned is actually like the techniques were not the problem. It was the playing well together that turned out to be the hard part of the class. Uh, there was this one moment where we brought actually Shang Lun into the class as a guest uh, to play some of the games. And I think just watching him play with Patrick and talk with Patrick, it was so interesting how because they had played well together in the past on this trip, they could immediately kind of uh, uh, get there, get that energy really quickly to snap back into that kind of energetic, critical playing well together. Mm. And and so, yeah, it's, it's, anyway, just still still struggling myself to figure out how can I share that energy with other people and mm-hmm. make them realize, hey, you know, we, we can do this kind of play, play well together as well. It was really beautiful. I keep thinking about Bernie now. Yeah. Um, when you look at other, other kind of game, game design classes, often it's teaching like a piece of software or like a really, really specific skill, whether it's narrative game design or you're teaching a class on unity or level design. And what was really, um, I think the, the complexity of the class that you co-taught was that you weren't actually teaching them like an engine or anything uh, that I think might be more legible to, to some of their previous game design classes, but you were teaching how to play together and you were trying to design for play in this really, really explicit way. And, and that was, um, that was very challenging. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to to Amani's point about uh, Bernie DeCoven and the the well played game, Stephanie and I were talking with John Sharp recently, just kind of hanging out, and something he said has really stuck with me, and that's that there's this kind of game play lesson from Bernie DeCoven that like if you're not comfortable, it's okay to sit out uh, anytime you want. It's okay yep. to like leave the game and to to watch from the sideline or even just leave. And I always thought of that as being for the person who's not comfortable playing. Like, so it's that you can, you, you yourself can exit this experience and feel comfortable leaving it. And John said something that made me flip that. And maybe I'm like too dense. I've never thought of it this way, but the reverse is also true. Like, um, it's to enable the people who choose to play to go all out. Like it's to enable the people who choose yeah, to play to, change the to, play. To, to feel comfortable in the fact that everybody who's choosing to play is choosing, is it's like an active consent model. And so it allows you to go much further, like go all the way, like Amani's saying. In a, and so I, I never really put that together, but I think that's something very special about this group is that because we had all chosen to live together and to do this schedule and to do this podcast and to do silly notes in the rooms. There was a kind of like up for itness and all inness that's really, really hard to embody and really hard to find time for and really hard to find that attitude. Uh, and it's definitely not something that is easy to simulate in a classroom. <laughs> yeah. I think that the, the sort of the need for group harmony was reflected. Like one of the favorite things when I'm thinking about, you know, the strongest memories of the trip was like when we were taking care of each other by um, cycling water and boiling water for each other and just always <laughs> making sure that it was like freshly stocked and that people were hydrated. And like, oh God. It, it's just such a like non-detail, right? Absolutely. But but we were all so on top of it 
It's such a post-apocalyptic scenario <laughs> where it's like, who, who who boiled the last gallon of water? Like, wait, who's going to do the next one? Mm-hmm. Make sure we always have this drinkable water yeah, <laughs> in a pot <laughs> sitting on, like, s- sitting just out on, like, a table. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, w- it was something where, you know, it took a little bit to get into that routine. But once it was set, we were all so attentive to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the things that I thought was, like, sweetest about us all being mm. in the same physical space all the time, you know, night to day and then back again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do think the Chad's point about um, the format of escape rooms, though, that that did actually help with what we were going through because there's a very confined time bound space where you have to be on and in the room, right? Like after your 60 minutes oh. or much less than that is up, like you can be off again. And so you, we're not in these stressful situations for like a continued long period of time. It was more like individual and there's a break in between and it helped yeah. like balance any tensions that were going on. A hundred percent. I think also having a ginormous swimming pool. Was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The pool never really comes up in the podcast itself. It's another one of those things like the sharing the key or the water yeah. pan out. Uh, the pool mm. was huge on that trip. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. literally, huge. <laughs> this, this only relates to me, but like, there was one night where it was so hot and the pool closed at 10, but there's no fence on the pool. So I thought, I'll just go in and act naive. And having that like 20 minutes before the guard came in this, like, literally, it's the think of, think of a huge pool and then double the size that you're thinking of. Um, and having these like 20 minutes to just float around and enjoy that was, I, I always, I'll never forget that. It was just so nice. But yeah. Yeah. That that pool is also where I learned how to play the game Yummy Yucky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think yeah. also beside the pool, there was a gym where uh, I th- it was mainly Shang Lun and I would actually wake up a little bit early every day. A little bit? It was like 5 a.m. <laughs> <Yeah. a>. <laughs> to go to go and lift weights. And it was always very, it was always a very clarifying experience. And it was my pre I, I was not able to do a pull-up at that point and 16 months later i now can yes so, I, I joined great. them for wow. a single workout <laughs> and then i decided after that to never do it all around the pool yeah alex showed me a photo um of us at that gym and we look swole we we were cranking hard <laughs> yeah wow it was um yeah <laughs> very fun <laughs> The balcony, the balcony was great too. So. Oh yeah. yeah, gin and tonics on the balcony. Good balcony, balcony, yeah, <laughs> lots of gin and tonics. I guess I would just point out, uh, I don't think it's coincidental that many memories relate not just to the escape rooms themselves, and that that goes back to this this meta point about play that it is uh, again not to minimize the like Jay's points are are really well taken, but that and you know that doesn't have to be you have the resources to plan a wonderful trip to Malaysia. You know, I I think there's ways of doing that locally with you and your friend group. Even if that's like, uh, before we play this board game, we're going to like make a nice snack, put some candles and the right music on, or, you know, what are those rituals around play that are just as memorable as the game itself? Because I I think when you have that synergy of the ritual and the game itself and the people, it's this classic, whole being greater than the sum of the parts. Mm. Yeah. So that's, um, I think, th- yeah. I think that's the more practical takeaway that I would urge um, uh, 
you know, listeners. It's, it's, and you can kind of get a taste of it with things like the Yorg, where you're sitting together and reading out your responses. Like even just the act of reading that out or, or tabletop games. And the other one um, is uh, the quiet year when you are supposed to like play in the dark with candles and stuff. And, and those things, yeah, mm. help create, uh, yeah, a whole like field, like an energetic field around you or something. I don't know what I'm saying, but <laughs> a magic circle, perhaps. A magic, a magic oh, circle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's. Um, I I wanted to add too that like this idea of the um, mindfulness that is involved in what what Doug is talking about, and and the idea that um, ritual is something that is created just by deliberation or by thoughtful framing of something, and that that's something that can happen. Mm anywhere and it's both a group experience and an intent like an individual internal one i'm fascinated by this i i think that there's so much there so much more than we can probably talk about right now but so i think do we have any actual uh learnings from the actual escape room experiences that we were doing like we've talked a lot about the the general concept of play and like being the community bringing bringing that aspect together like did we did we learn anything yeah. from the actual experiences that we that we took part in um. <laughs> <laughs> this is an amazing question too um, many learnings i mean every single thing that we've played since then i think we have used the malaysia trip as a reference point to compare it against um even you know I, the experiences that we were maybe critical of or, or didn't enjoy there was so much to learn from it still. So everything now has to stand up to that, this big thing that we've just done. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I hear what uh, you mean that like this trip helped develop a vocabulary, um, yeah. not necessarily specific words, but just the, the ability to um, compare and contrast things to that experience that we had uh, where everything yeah. was analyzed so deeply and communally um, that it definitely transforms the way that I experience work now. Mm-hmm. And mm. I, you know, it was so broad, it was unique in that we got to experience sort of the hand of the creator by doing, you know, the, all of the parlors things in one day, whereas normally it's spaced out. It, it just mm-hmm. the amount of insight I think that we got both as enthusiast players and as, as makers ourselves of escape rooms is like, I can't even, I think we're going to be thinking about it for the rest of our creative lives, really. And like, I think a lot of this is like what what was memorable and what wasn't memorable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is like, okay, so we barely remember the puzzles in any way. The the things that really like stuck out to me were like the theatrical and physical elements and the the um just the spectacle. Mm-hmm. Like every time there was a spectacle, that is an image that's in my head. Right. So like Mm. as someone trying to create experiences that people do remember, it's like always trying to think like after a year when someone's trying to remember what even happened in this experience, like what what is the thing that is going to be stuck in their mind? Yeah. Like what stands out uh, Mm. from all of those? Because we did so many different things. What is not the season shifts? The little pieces of paper are like the last thing that stand out. (laughs) It's really random for me because my memory was is so bad from that period. So I just have uh, very random memories and really very few words. It's really weird because we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what stood out to me was um, 
how easily snobby you can get about about escape rooms and such. Like I, I remember um, when we would go to some of the ones which were a little bit lower quality or a little bit lower production value or maybe just lower effort in general, we'd just be like, oh, and you know, it's just it just feels disappointing, yeah. and then you forget that. For someone who's never done it before, it's still something really exciting and new and novel. And then once you've done so many of them, you suddenly become a lot pickier. Mm-hmm. I remember, I remember taking limbs away from you, like you know, just trying to keep any limbs that turned up in escape room away from you, Alex. <laughs> yeah, no, limbs are a no-go zone. Well, I, I think that the ones that are the most memorable were not, I mean, the spectacle and, and set design, of course, is like a part of it, but it was ones that were crafted to leave room for emergent play, right? Mm. The stuff that was the most memorable yes. to me were things like the Annabelle room where, you know, the the scaring was like a little bit extra. Um, things like the classroom where we had the role playing, uh, things where we as a group were sort of making play good for each other in addition to the structure of the room that was provided. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting and reading that, uh, that diary, just me and Alex were just sitting and reading that diary for ages. Yeah. And I, I think that this also speaks to Jay's point about like what, what you take away or remember from escape rooms is that for me, so I, I started at the beginning of the trip having not really played any escape rooms and I, I don't know if I actually thought that this is what would happen, but I, I had maybe this idea that I would get better at playing right. escape rooms, that somehow I would get more skilled at doing it, that I would be a more effective escape room player. Right. That, was, that totally didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, not even close. But what did happen to me is that I became more comfortable with being bad, mm. like, quote-unquote bad at playing escape rooms. And the only funny part of that is that now that I've like done this thing, when our, you know, when, when folks or friends find out that, that like, oh, you went and played 50 escape rooms, you must be like some escape room whiz or like an expert at this point. And then there's always this like shock when they like play with me and they find out that they're like the main engines of puzzle solving. It's like, no, haven't learned that much. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. I think is like for me as well, like I've come out the other side of it being like, okay, I'm, I'm completely comfortable now saying that I'm really good at hand dexterity and hand eye coordination. Like I know that now because that was like, that was always the puzzle that I would just excel at, um, the, you know, easily. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm really good at that now. And going in, I wouldn't have, I would have been like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to be good at. And now I can be like, yeah, if, you, if you've got me on your team, just get me to do anything to do with dexterity. I'm going to kill it. What's, what's, what's really fascinating is um, through playing together, we, we kind of got an idea of what each other's strengths and weaknesses are and kind of started to like respect that and, and give permission t- uh, to those people to, you know, do their thing while you uh, seek out other opportunities in the escape room. Exactly. And, and I've just been thinking about, like, um, the memories of, of, like, you know, moments in particular escape rooms. And I guess for me, 
Um, mm-hmm. One of the biggest highlights was en- ending up in that dog cage. Oh my god, my favorite <laughs> image is Chad in a dog cage. <laughs> my favorite image is Chad in the clown mask. He was so happy to abandon him there too, Patrick. Very pleased to abandon him with Imani <laughs> down another dark hallway. <laughs> I love the I loved the image of Chad with the clown nose on as well. Like some of yeah. the funniest mental images I have from my trip uh, uh, just to do with Chad being gorgeous. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I remember Patrick um, um, mishearing, I think, red nose as retinas. Yeah, the whole day. I thought they were talking about a clown's <laughs> eye. <laughs> <laughs> I also love accidentally signing fuck off to Doug instead of thank you. I don't know whether I contextualized that at the time, but that is how to say thank you in Auslan. Although it's not. Right, right, right. There you go. Yeah. So maybe that's what you were going for. Um, I was really going for thank you. (laughs) Another, another really big highlight was, um, when we were playing with Li Ying, uh, we we had uh, Li Ying blindfolded so that she couldn't see anything, and Alex and I had to guide her. Um, and and Alex and I couldn't touch anything in the in the escape room. Um, and I remember so good. I wish I could be a fly oh, on the wall in that room. So good. It was so good. We had to attach a magnet to the tip of like a a long wooden stick and, and like poke it through a door. Um, and, and on the other side, there were like keys that we had to attach the magnets to. And I remember, um, take, like it took forever to get the, the first key. And once we got it, she like leading just collapsed on the floor going, Oh my God, I can't take it. It's too intense. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think there was something like 10 keys or something on that wall and every yeah. single one of them they would just drop sadly to the ground and be like well now we can't re- retrieve it anymore like what are we supposed to do and this isn't even a this isn't an easy task for someone who can see <laughs> <We dropped all laughs> so at the end like we were so convinced that we would have to call a staff member in there because it was like well they're all on the floor now there's nothing we can do from here on out yeah. um, but somehow we managed to get it from there oh that was stressful (laughs) i want to do it again i want to do all of it again and i want to do it all again with like funny rules and uh it was yeah i just want to do it again more and more and more more every game in the city too i'm gonna do more unless somebody has a quick follow-up i have a a favorite moment that i was just reminded of is um we come out of the escape rooms uh over and over again and we're like what's with this uh, tendency towards like Hollywood narrative and like, Oh, this is just, it's not a based on this kind of Malaysian mythology. It's just saw, just saw like we figured out like much later after this trip that, you know, saw is made by James Wan. Who's this kind of incredible Malaysian Australian director uh, who's also responsible for the conjuring world, uh, which I think in the first movie of that trilogy is Annabelle. 
So like Annabelle, the nun, like saw any of this stuff. This is not like, you know, uh, Hollywood divorced from context. This is like a deeply proud part of Malaysian culture that just went way over our heads. That is so cool. Apparently we haven't watched enough James Wan. Shame on us. Uh, We have since fixed. (laughs) Yes. In the intervening months. (laughs) Watch every Saw movie, every Conjuring movie, every Annabelle movie, every Nun movie. (laughs) Too spooky. Yeah, so that was really interesting to me that, like, um, you know, uh, from our perspective, it was like this Hollywood thing, but actually it has this kind of deeper meaning. And and also it makes sense for uh, an escape room to be themed around these specific universes because they're these creepy, spooky uh, spaces that are perfect. Like Saw is the perfect escape room movie uh, kind of uh, series. Yeah. If if we're talking about specific escape room lessons, I, I would have a recommendation and a question. Uh, the recommendation would be, especially after playing Classroom Murder, uh, that uh, was just so hungry for a mundane, relatable setting for an escape room. And just how refreshing that seemed uh, and it wasn't just in Malaysia and other countries, you know, playing these sci-fi or mystery or whatever, um, just being in a classroom. I-, I would love to see more escape rooms in relatable settings. I think that's a mm-hmm. very easy win. Um, yeah, like Laura and Jay's r- room in an attic. Yep, exactly. Yeah, totally. So that's that's one huge lesson that stands out to me. Um uh, one big question, you know, we talked a lot about on this trip about the f- the physicality and maybe how... Uh, with different legal parameters in Malaysia, things were happening there in terms of the climbing and jumping that we had to do that that might not happen for all sorts of both good and bad reasons in, in the States. And so, um, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, ethics around accessibility uh, that I don't quite understand. And so I, I feel like um, this trip was a wake-up call for, for me in that if I was going to design an escape room, I'd want to think really seriously, well, how can we... How can we provide that physical spe- spectacle for people? You know, to Jay's point, that is one of the, the things that really stand out to me memorably, uh, while not excluding uh, other people who are who are not able or willing to kind of do slash, you know, who don't want to do these arguably unsafe mm-hmm. things. So right. uh, that we don't want to go through <laughs> Jeffrey's tubes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but that's 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 a big um, question for me. I don't I don't have an easy solution to that, no, but I'm... it's certainly one of the major themes pulling away in terms of questions about escape rooms. Hundred percent. Who's Jeffrey? And why are we in his tube? Yeah, what's a Jeffrey tube? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, Stephanie. What are these Star Trek references? It's the Star on this Trek, yeah, just, it's the it's, it's uh, the little corridors that they're always walking through on Star Trek. They're called Jeffrey's oh, tubes. Oh, I was really imagining more like a vast Jeffrey's situation. <laughs> like, I was oh thinking, boy. or oh, I thought bodies. about the crawl spaces that they made us go through in that museum one. Mm-hmm. Oh, the baby, the crawling babies. Oh no. I said this during the episode. I'm I'm big and I'm heavy, and I had to like get up an elevator shaft. Um, I'm always thinking about my body because it's different, and it it's the world isn't designed for my body, and escape rooms sometimes aren't designed for my body. Um, and then I got through it was like really really great and fun and made me feel good. But there were a few moments where I was just like, oh shit, this is this could go very bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And it didn't, but you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm like pretty able-bodied. So yeah, I, I have been reflecting on it a little bit. Um, 
no answers, but it is important to consider those yeah. things. Yeah. But it's also, it's not like a GDC talk or whatever. Ah, you, here are the five audience takeaways that we learned from our yeah. escape room trip. Like actually a good takeaway is often more a theme or a difficult question, because I think some of the most interesting, uh, if these were easy problems, they would be solved already. Right. Right. So, so I think um, it's not necessarily a bullet point list of here are the five things you should do with your escape room. Um, so yeah, I hope uh, if people have listened to all the episodes, we've made visible some of those questions uh, to pose at other people as well. They are also problems and questions that the larger escape room industry and maker communities are grappling with in a very totally, uh, totally, totally you know, relevant way. Um, in November, no, sorry, October last year, and again in October this year, Melbourne International Games Week occurred, and I co-organized with Matthew Lee, um, Australia's first escape room uh, game owner, designer, maker conference. Um, or specifically unconference. And we had 40 to 50 uh, escape room owners, enthusiasts, researchers, all that kind of stuff, um, come along and discuss the mm-hmm. state. There's so many. There's so many um, from, from interstate that came by. Wow. Uh, and that wasn't even all the people who made escape rooms. That was just uh, the people that we managed to reach in that time. It's called Superconductor, and you can <laughs> check it out on superconductor.live. Um, but very much the same conversations that we've been having on the podcast, the same questions, the same interrogations there. When I mention I've done, you know, this project, every game in the city, they, there is a sense of, oh, that's really cool. We've done hundreds of escape rooms as well and have had the same questions and same conversations in different mm. ways. Uh, Interesting. Which is really excellent. Wow. Um, and in the se- in its second year, those conversations evolved to be really specific about like, how do we talk about emotional labor when making a game um, in escape room or immersive experience? How do we ensure for maximum accessibility and safety of patrons? And, you know, really good grappling with the foundational doing the work. Um, so I'm heartened by the fact that that mm-hmm. is not just a discussion that we've had that has evolved, um, but that the links that people make, for example, Laura keynoted um, Ooh, via yes. <laughs> a delightful video about playfulness at Superconductor, which was amazing, was awesome. by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, and that, you know, the same conversations happening in Australia are also happening worldwide. Uh, so it's not just that we have evolved by doing all these escape rooms. It's like the, the, the scene, the movement itself is also evolving uh, simultaneously. One interesting thing that I think is kind of adjacent to this issue of, of accessibility um, kind of as a, a game design technique is the fact that escape rooms are designed around asymmetrical access to information, which means that you can have different people at the, at the same time um, kind of looking at or, or solving different puzzles sometimes uh, in, in many of the, the cases of escape rooms. And um, that's a possible way to think about designing for accessibility is that not every single person is doing every single puzzle, mm-hmm. but that the combined sort of some of its parts turns into something greater that everybody contributed to. That's kind of what an ideal escape room is supposed to be in the first place is that 
kind of everybody uh, sort of pitches in in some way. And that's both like one of the affordances of escape rooms as well as I think one of the, what I've, what I've kind of increasingly noticed is one of its constraints as well as the fact that when I enter an escape room and suddenly everybody's doing all these different things at the same time, I only kind of have partial access to information. And so one of the design challenges is trying to figure out how people can <laughs> sort of not get lost uh, when that moment of fragmentation happens. Because what I've noticed in in playing escape rooms after Kuala Lumpur for me is that often the biggest mistakes that happen aren't like a failure to solve like a specific challenge or puzzle um, or code, that kind of thing, or cipher, but it's that I just didn't see something yeah. in the room. <laughs> yeah, there's something kind of thinking about this question of asymmetrical play as well as Jay's question of like, what sticks out about the escape rooms. Um, not to get like mushy on all of you, but like something that was spectacular to me over the course of the week is that these rooms actually provided a lens to get to know you a lot better and to get to know like who you are and what you're interested in and how you have fun. And it's it was really interesting to me that like um, something like Doug having long arms became like a <laughs> meme on this podcast, right? And and that Doug even had a moment like late in the run of the podcast where he's referring to himself as like Butterfingers Wilson or Long Arms Wilson, or, or the fact that Amani is like incredibly brave and will just like totally chained up, like walk through a completely dark hallway or sit in an electric chair or whatever. Or the fact that Chung Lun can completely like super Saiyan his way through puzzles um, as if like he can see kind of like the matrix, right? <laughs> so, so there's something like so bound up in my memories of the spectacle of like the giant Newton's cradle or of Annabelle going missing or these other spectacular moments. There's something like so bound up in that that is so much to do with all of you and like how I see you now. I'm starting to cry. (laughs) It's very true though. And it's really interesting. I mean, in the time since we've played all of these games, I've done two different artist workshops with different organizations. Um, One was with Odyssey works, which does sort of like extremely hyper personalized long experiences that are designed for just one person at a time. Um, and then another one for a French street theater company called Bigat Theater, which actually turned out to be a, the- a workshop for actors, not just for people who are interested in street theater. Uh, that was a bit of a rude awakening. But what I learned in that was that we're all talking about the same thing in the same terms. Um, just this, this idea of experience as a gift, this idea of the magic that happens when people are coming together in a space. And really the only way to break through these silos is by being in these spaces together, like in, in terms of the industry crossover, it's in these workshops. And then I think in terms of, yeah, in our personal lives, being in these spaces together, having fun. Yeah. I think it was a, a, it was a a rare experience to be able to do something like this, to be able to like compress so many new experiences into such a short period of time with the same large group of people it's like going to Disney World for the first time, going to every single park, doing every single ride. Each experience is brand new, and you can only do that once and have that untainted experience. Like uh, You can go back to Disney, but you'd never recapture that same thing, which is just like escape rooms where you can't really go back. I think that's what makes it special. Like The one time you do it is with those people 
And that's the only time you can do it. Yeah. I'm glad we were able to capture that in this podcast. Mm-hmm. The Heracliton River of <laughs> escape rooms. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we've reached a sort of natural ending point. So that brings us to the end of our episode and the end of the first season of Every Game in This City. This has been... Three, two, one... Every, Every Game in This Star City. city. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no. Uh, it's a little sad, but it's also awesome to have finished the first season. <laughs> yeah. it's, been, it's, it's been an absolute... Oh, my God. Sweet I've, I've enjoyed it. Yes, I want to do it again. I keep saying that. Every Game in the City is a podcast on the Idle Thumbs Network. We recorded season one in a hot bedroom in Pataling Jaya during the summer of 2018. Our theme music is a cover of Seiko 4 by Yasuaki Shimizu, a piece he originally composed for a wristwatch commercial in the 80s. You can find us on the web at everygameinthis.city, as well as most social media networks and podcasting platforms. And that's a wrap for season one. Thank you so much for listening to us play way too many escape rooms. Uh, This week we'll also be launching a tiny outro episode where Stephanie, Patrick, and Doug meet up to talk about what's next. Maybe you guessed it? Every game in the city will return in 2020 with a season set during the International Dota 2 Championships, where we try and watch every esport in Shanghai. The battle begins.